As a deer pants for the flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God, with loud shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Those are verses 1 to 5 of Psalm 42, which along with Psalm 43 of the Psalms appointed for today, Saturday, September the 3rd, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We're continuing our look at uh, the story of Job. Uh, Today we're in chapter 22, verses 1 to 4. Skip forward to to verse 21 of chapter 22, and then through chapter 23, verse 7, in the Gospel according to John, chapter 10, verses 1 to 18, and then in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 13, verses 26 to 43. So, Job, we're going to hear again from Eliphaz, who is the first who speaks in all the cycles of speeches by the um, by the, the three friends. The Eliphaz is always the first, which probably indicates that he is the oldest of the group because that's the way the pecking order would have gone in those days. So the other thing is he's a Temanite, which means he's from Edom, the, the territory that belonged to Edom. And so Edom at that time was famed for the wisdom of its people. And so that's another reason to defer to Eliphaz. But now where does this wisdom come from? And is it speaking truly about God? And we know ultimately that it's not because God says he's the, he, Job, is the only one who spoke truthfully about me. So Eliphaz, the Temanite, answered Job and said, Can a man be profitable to God? Do, do we have any value to him at all? And if you think of God only as great and self-sufficient, then then the answer to that is obviously no. God doesn't need any man, and we don't add anything to God. So in that sense, we're not profitable to God. We, we In fact, we're the other way around. But that's not all there is to God. Again, we, we have this problem of of only seeing the greatness of God without seeing the goodness of God. So, yes, we matter to God. He is, this is sort of the, the way of seeing God as dispassionate and removed from his people. So that, that it diminishes the value of humankind. That's the that question he's posing is, is essentially to say, what's the value of humankind to God? And, and the answer would be, well, nothing, really. Surely, he who is wise is profitable to himself, Wisdom, again, being the, the main feature that, that of the Edomites at that time. Is it any pleasure to the Almighty if you're in the right? Or is it gain to him if you make your ways blameless? Is this benefiting God in any way? I mean, it's, it's as though the belief is God only be- works and does things based on a, a cost-benefit calculation that he's made. Is it for your fear of him that he reproves you and enters into judgment with you? In other words, I think we found the root of the problem, Job. The root of the problem is you don't have the fear of the Lord. You want to bring him down and make him man. The incarnation is in some ways the, the response to this theology. The, the idea that God is this dispassionate observer in the sky who 
we don't know why he created humankind, but and we don't really understand how in any possible way it could profit God to have us. We're just a problem all the time. And so now what he says is that that's the problem, Job. You're not afraid of God. You don't have the fear of the Lord. Therefore, you don't have wisdom. Well, that's not true. We know better than that. We know what Job did. We know that he, con- he was concerned all the time his children got together that they may have sinned against the Lord, and so he made sacrifices for that reason. He believed in, had fear of the Lord. He, he absolutely did. And Eliphaz goes on to say, agree with God. You know, in other words, just agree with him that, 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 that you're in the wrong and he's in the right. Agree with God and be at peace. Therefore, good will come to you. See, right? I mean, if you get on God's side, then everything will go fine. Don't worry about it. Receive instruction from his mouth and lay up your words and his, his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, he'll, you'll be built up. If you remove injustice far from your tents, if you lay gold in the dust and the gold of Ophir among the streets of the, or the stones of the torrent bed, then the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver. There's truth in this. There's absolute truth in what he's saying. He says, give up everything. Give up all these pleas you're making and just agree with God. But Job can't agree with God in the sense that, that Eliphaz wants him to. Because what he wants him to agree to is that there was sin in his life. And we know better than that. We know that even God didn't say that. So when he says agree with God on these things, you know, he's not telling falsehoods about getting rid of everything else and counting every counting him more important than anything else. But what he is asking him to do is not to agree with God, but to agree with Eliphaz. And what must be the case? My theology tells me that. For then you will delight yourself in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. You'll make your prayer to him and he'll hear you and you'll pay your vows. You'll decide on a matter and it'll be established for you and light will shine on your ways. If you if, if you agree with God in this, Job, if you agree with, well, me, because I'm the ones convicting you of sin, not God. Um, but but he, he's so convinced of this. He said, look, if you do this, then everything will go well. Everything will be back to normal. What you want, what you decide, all that stuff will be established. For when they're humbled, you, you say it's because of pride, but he saves the lowly. He delivers even the one who is not innocent, who will be delivered through the cleanness of your hands. And then Job answered and said, Today my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, God, that I might come even to his seat. I'd lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he would pay attention to me. There an upright man could argue with him, and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. Well, the problem is is that now Job has brought God down and put him in the dock and said, you know, I, I, he would acknowledge that, I, that I'm right in this. Now, that, that's a problem, too. I mean, he, he thinks that he can um, argue with God in such a way that God will say, yes, Job, you're exactly right. But he wouldn't have to argue with God. And that's the point, because we know what God thought of Job. And we know that that's not why any of this has happened. This is not punishment for sin. It's not punishment for anything. It, it's something that happened because Satan uh, decided to, to say that Job could be brought low. But God's the one who brought attention to Job to start with. So we have to believe that God had a motive and a plan all along in bringing this up. And so we can ascribe things to sin always, and then we can plead our case, or we can humbly come before the Lord and say, I don't understand. I don't know what's going on. I don't understand this. Would you please show me? 
And that's the thing that, that, that Job's theology gets in the way of asking that question. His friend's theology gets in the way of their asking that question. In, remember yesterday we finished up with um, the man born blind that Jesus had healed and the Pharisees wouldn't believe because, well, they knew things. <laughs> in spite of the fact they didn't know things, but they didn't see the evidence that was before them. There was a pride that, that would go before them that, that failed to allow them to see and perceive the truth. Here, Jesus is talking, and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he, doesn't enter, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. So I've, I've told this before, but every time we get here, I need to say it again, just because there might be people who haven't heard this. So at, at, the shepherds would, would typically collect in, in certain areas. And so you get you know one guy and his flock over here and another and his flock over here. And it, in the evening, they would come together, and they, would, they, they had built a shelter, in essence, for all the flocks to come into. And so take them in there for safety, because that way there were no predators could get in, and they could each take a watch during the night. And that way... Everybody could get some sleep. So that's what a sheepfold is. And so the, the shepherds and their sheep come in through the door of the sheepfold. And what he's saying is, is that only somebody who is a thief and a robber comes in some other way. He says, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep, and to him the gatekeeper opens. Whoever the gatekeeper is that night, it's the person who is who's sheltering their flocks closest to the gate. The, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And that's exactly what it would have looked like each morning as they l- exited the sheepfold. Each shepherd would go out, and he would call his sheep, and they would hear his voice, and they would follow him, and they wouldn't follow another sheep. So they would each call their flock out one flock at a time. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they won't follow, but they will flee from him, for they don't know the voice of strangers. And that's exactly what Jesus is laying out is, is that we should be exactly those kind of people. We should be the kind of people who know only and follow only the voice of Jesus, and anything else that doesn't fit with that, we run away from. But the problem is is that we neglect the study of the Word, and therefore too often we can be deceived. I've been listening to a guy, Derek Prince, a lot lately. Derek Prince died 20 years ago, um, but, but he was a significant figure in, in the Pentecostal movement in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and, and early 2000s. Um, but... He was constantly warning people that, that not knowing the Word of God made you incredibly vulnerable to deception by false teachers. And, and so we have to know his voice by studying him, by knowing about him. So this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they didn't understand what he was saying to them. So again, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. So he's saying that his sheep are not the ones who are following these other leaders like the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and all that. He says, I'm the door. I'm the way people come in. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy. There are a lot of thieves out there. There are a lot of false shepherds out there. 
And we in the church have to be good about spotting those things and pointing those things out. We need to be like John the Baptist with those people. We need to, as, as he pointed to Jesus and said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, what we need to be good at is doing, is doing the opposite of that and saying, behold, a false prophet, a false teacher. We need to, we need to be good at saying that. It's not wrong to tell when somebody is teaching falsely. He said, if anyone enters by me, he'll be saved and go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to kill and steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd is God. That's Psalm 23. That, that's who he's referring to. That, when he says the good shepherd, he's referring to the uh, shepherd of Psalm 23. But he's also referring to um, prophecies of Zechariah and others who talk about bad shepherds. Ezekiel talks about it as well. They talk about bad shepherds, and then God will come, and he will be their shepherd, and he'll break the staffs of the shepherds who are the bad shepherds. And so Jesus is referring to those prophecies, and he's referring to himself as the fulfillment of those prophecies, God himself shepherding his people. He said, the good shepherd, this is the way to know who the good shepherd is. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, which is exactly what Jesus is going to do. And in some ways, it's exactly what he is doing in the Incarnation. And that's exactly what Paul tells the Philippian church. And that is is that, that he laid aside, he didn't count equality with God as something to be grasped, to be held on to tenaciously, but laid that aside and took on flesh and was found in the form of a servant. So he's already laid down his life. He is in this moment that he speaks lay in the process of laying down his life. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. The, the, the true shepherd counts the lives of the sheep more valuable than his own. And he said that's the way you can tell a false shepherd is that they abandon the sheep whenever the wolf comes. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, so non-Jews, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. I heard somebody one time talk about this as, as, as though what Jesus was saying was is that there are, there are many ways to the Father. There are many ways of salvation, because there's, there's more than, than the sheep that are in this fold. Well, he says, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So if you're listening to Buddha's voice, then, then that's not Jesus' voice. If you're listening to Muhammad's voice, that's not Jesus' voice. If you're listening to Confucius' voice, that's not Jesus' voice. Jesus' voice is found in the Word of God, period, in the Bible. He said, so there will be one flock and one shepherd, for this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own account. So he, he does, he, he, says, he says, this is not the Father doing child sacrifice, and it's not ultimately even the Jews or the Romans taking my life. No, 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 this is a willing sacrifice. It won't look that way, but it is. And we know, in retrospect, indeed it was. He says, I have authority to lay it. The, my life down, and I have authority to take it up again, this charge I have received from my Father. So Jesus is making the argument that, that, that those other people, keep an eye on them. They're in it for self-profit, self-gain. 
So that's the issue. And so it, this is also a response to Eliphaz's argument about what is it, does it profit God to have a man? Can a man be profitable to God? It, yes, is the answer. We are, we are of such worth to the Father that he and the Son couldn't live eternity without us. And so they came on a rescue mission in the form of Jesus to deliver us from sin, deliver us from death. In the epistle, remember yesterday what had happened was Paul was speaking in a synagogue on a Sabbath, and, and he told the brief history of salvation um, from the time the, of the chosenness of the people all the way up through the time through the Jesus. So then he goes on to say, now that he's going to make the application. right? So he's already given the history lesson, now he's going to make the application. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God. Now remember when he first addressed the people, he addressed them as, as um, the people of Israel and those who fear God. So those God-fearers from the Greeks who have come and are in there to be instructed. He says, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers. Now he's not in Jerusalem. He's speaking outside Jerusalem. So he's pointing back to, to the rulers and the leaders of the nation. Because if you're from Jerusalem, and that's why Paul gets invited to speak, is because he's from Jerusalem. So it's assumed that he, he has something important to say to this congregation. He says, those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they didn't recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. He says, the people, the would-be leaders of the people, the people who are supposed to have all the knowledge, the, the people that that really matter, and the proof is you asked me to speak because I'm from Jerusalem. He says, those people got it completely wrong. They didn't recognize him, and they didn't understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every single Sabbath. They fulfilled those prophecies by condemning him, and though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from a tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to his people. And we bring you the good news that God promised, what God promised to the fathers. This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as it is also written in Psalm 2. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he spoke in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. And this is one of the things that Jesus actually argued about, this, this very passage. He says, Paul says, for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. So the statement, you will not let your Holy One see corruption, can't apply to David because he died and was buried and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that though this man, through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So the, all those sins that there was no sacrifice set up for, those things, all of that, you can be freed from all of that in Jesus. What he's saying is the law was perfect as far as it went, but it didn't cover everything, and it didn't provide relief and freedom from everything. It wasn't able to restrain your conduct. It's the argument that he's going to make about the law all through Galatians and also in the letter to the church at Rome. 
he's making that same argument that the law wasn't sufficient. It was only a pedagogue to get you to the place, to Jesus, where you could find forgiveness and you could find life and you could find the ability to keep the law through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So the law was intended to get you to that place because it was there to define good conduct. It's there to define what a godly life looked like. But it couldn't produce that. He says, instead, what it produced was sin. Because I wanted whatever it said I couldn't have. He says, now, with the giving of the Holy Spirit, the ability to live the life God always wanted you to live is within your grasp. Because the law wasn't good enough to get to that place. He says, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. So he says, he says, wake up, listen to what I'm saying here. And, and I'm, what I'm saying is, in line with the prophets, don't be those people who missed what God was doing. Because you didn't believe, because you allowed something else that you, quote, knew to stand in the way of you believing and accepting the truth. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them again the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. So Paul reaped a harvest that day. I mean, he's beginning to move. Here he is in Antioch in Pisidia. I mean, Antioch seems to be his sweet spot, right? And so here what we get is Paul getting a harvest at the synagogue. These people who are outside of Jerusalem were willing to hear the truth. They were willing to hear the truth about Jesus. Surely they had heard before. There's no possibility in my mind that, they, that at least some of these people knew, knew about Jesus but they didn't know the whole story. And so Paul here gives the entire story. And what he's saying is, is in answer to Eliphaz's thing, can a man be profitable to God? He says so much so that he was willing to send his son to die that he might have you as an asset. It's a wonderful blessing to know the depth of God's love for us and to know the depth of God's goodness, not just his greatness, but that's important too because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So we start in that place. And we never outgrow the fear of the Lord, but when we begin to see other aspects of his character, and when we begin to celebrate those things, then we're moving in true wisdom more and more, deeper and deeper. We begin to know his voice and only respond to his voice and his call, which is the end of all wisdom.